Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, for it speaks life to us. And we pray that for those who are hungry for your spirit, for your filling, for those who are grasping for life, that you will speak to us, that we will have the word of life, that we'll be filled with your presence, that we may be a blessing for others around us. We thank you so much for uh, the fact that you love to speak to us, and we pray that you will speak to us through these words. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started, we've started a, a series on life of Abraham, and we're continuing it. Um, I, I don't know about you, but uh, I think it's, it constantly amazes me when I read history of the world, of any sort of um, history story, and how such a few people have shaped the, the flow of the world. Um, I would love to have been there as a fly on the wall to see, um, to hear the conversations of important meetings in history, if you think about all the important meetings that went on throughout the history, to be at the, maybe the, at the White House as um, President Obama, Bernanke, Summers, and others were meeting to decide on how many trillions of dollars was going to go into this uh, uh, economic uh, stimulus package, or to be at the top level of the Chinese government, um, and that maybe may have decided the outcome of the chief ex- executive um, election here, to be fly on the wall and to listen to the conversation there, to see what the issues have been, what they talked about. That would be very interesting, but we aren't invited to these meetings, well, most of us aren't, um, because most of us aren't in that position of decision-making. But, once again, did you know that God invites us into his divine counsel, the meeting of the Trinity, into the meeting of the mind of God? And this is what happened to Abraham in chapter 18, and also through, through Christ, what happens to us? As well, God reveals his mind to Abraham so that he could, we, so Abraham could participate in that discussion and act based on that knowledge. God invites Abraham into that conversation. And last week we talked about how God appeared in human form so that he could sit down with Abraham. And we see now in our reading in verse 17 um, that God appears in human form so that, well, he sort of looks up and walks around and talks. Um, but if you think about why does God do that? Why doesn't God just appear and disappear? In verse 20 to 21, there's this question. God says that he has heard the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah and their sin, and he's going to go there to investigate, to see what is there. And if you're asking why doesn't God, why does God do that? Doesn't God already know what's going on? Of course he does. But that's the point. That um, God doesn't have to walk or talk or eat or converse with Abraham, but he does. He appeared so that he could reveal his plan to Abraham because he wants to talk to Abraham about that plan. And that is exactly what God does in verse 17. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Once again, this is a rhetorical question. He chose Abraham to be a great nation, a source of blessing for all people, so that he could do what is right and just. So God is going to reveal his plan to Abraham so he could hear from him. 
All of this really is an invitation for Abraham to converse with God and participate in his plan. He has invited Abraham to the divine court, to the divine council, to be his counselor, because he wants that sort of relationship with Abraham. It's a bit like when your good friend comes over for dinner and tells you, this is what I'm going to do. What do you think about that? That's what God wants. That's what God is doing. God appears, talks, invites Abraham into that conversation. In fact, if these three men were Yahweh God and maybe two angels, it seems like the two angels go away so that Yahweh God could talk to Abraham alone. Look at verse 22. Only Abraham is standing there before Yahweh. And Yahweh, uh, and Abraham then takes up that invitation. Abraham finally approaches God in verse 23 and speaks. And he questions God. And he is persistent in his question. As you know, he questions about God's justice. He asks whether he could save the city for the sake of the 50 righteous people. And then he goes on to ask about 45 people. Well, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? And how about 10? Although Abraham knows and acknowledges that he is really no more than dust and ashes, in verse 27, God listens to all of this. God patiently listens. He answers. Um, just as he would if he were friends with Abraham. And that was the privilege given to Abraham. He was invited into that council as a friend. And that privilege is offered to all of us as well. God invites us into his council. God invites us and he reveals his plan for the whole world in it, um, in that meeting, and remember how God has revealed uh, his plans to us, and remember how God has called us his friends when Jesus appeared in John 15. Jesus says in the upper room, uh, 15, 15, I no longer call you fr- servants because servants do not know his master's plans. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. He says, I call you friends because everything that I know I have revealed to you. This is the plan. This is the plan of salvation. God had made, uh, God had made himself known um, in the world through Jesus. And through Jesus, God has revealed the mind and the plan of God through scripture. God spoke about the wide gate that leads to destruction and the narrow gate that, that leads to salvation. He spoke about how God was going to then die on the cross and rise again. He spoke about how the Old Testament and everything that happened in the Old Testament was about Him and how the history of the world will end. It will end when Jesus returns. He says there will be judgment. There will be a separation between uh, of the righteous and the wicked. And all of that is an invitation invitation for his friends to listen and now talk back to him, to talk to him, um, to participate in, in his plan, to pray also on behalf of the world as Abraham does. For us to carry out the prophetic ministry of telling the world God's plan of the truth and of the truth about the world. 
And all that we do, all the prayers that we will say based on this revelation that has been given to us, all that we will do um, will somehow affect God, God's plan. Already in some sort of mysterious, transcendent way, all that we do, all the things that we will pray, and all the things that we will do is already in part, of, it, it, it's a part of God's fulfilling that plan that he's already laid out. We're invited into that sort of relationship with God. God invites us. God reveals his plans to us. God calls us his friends, not just to listen, not just to, he, uh, he doesn't invite us just into uh, his counsel, not just to listen as a fly on the wall, but to participate in it, to talk to him, to converse with him, and to act based on that knowledge. So that is the amazing invitation that God gives us. God wants us to be drawn in to his plan. But when Abraham uh, accepts this invitation, he approaches God. The question that Abraham uh, raises is a really interesting question. It's actually a theological question. It's true that God's, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot was living in, in, in Sodom. But he doesn't seem to just inquire about his nephew and what might happen to him. His question is more about what's righteous, what's right, and what is just. And remember what God had said in his sort of this internal monologue in verse 19. He says, he'll tell this, so that he will direct his children and his household after, after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. That word right and just, justice, righteousness, appear again and again throughout the story. And um, this is what exactly uh, Abraham does. Abraham asks about what is right, what is just. He says in verse 23, really, is it, is it just to sweep away a whole city, even if it's a wicked city, if there are righteous people there? If there are righteous people mingled there, is it just, just for you to, to, uh, to, to punish that city? Will God sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will God destroy the whole city if there are righteous people there? Um, it's not just, he says, to treat the righteous and the wicked in the same way, Abraham says. As you can see in the footnote uh, 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 in your Bible there, the word for spare, will you not spare this city for the sake of the righteous, is the spare is the word for forgive. What he's saying is, will you not forgive the entire city for the sake of the righteous people living there? Uh, Tim Keller uh, and a and, and bunch of um, commentators say that this is a theological question. Can God be so pleased with a person's righteousness that he forgives other people's sins? We know that in the Bible that the reverse is true. If somebody sins in the family or the tribe, the whole family or the tribe is held responsible. For example, in Exodus 34, um, 7, God says he'll punish the guilty, but not just the guilty, but his children and their children for the sins of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. In fact, that's probably the best way of looking at Adam and Adam's sin. 
Adam was a representative of all of us. And when he sinned, the entire humanity that he represents is held responsible. Because he is our forefather, because he was our head. Take another example in Joshua 7. This is Achan. At the destruction of uh, the walls of Jer- uh, Jericho, remember how they circled around and blew the, uh, blew the trumpet and the whole wall uh, came crumbling down? At that, uh, at, that, at that conquest, the Israelites destroyed everything but kept some for the temple. However, a, a man named Achan kept, for, uh, kept some for himself. As a result... The whole nation of Israel suffers defeat in the next battle. And actually, in Joshua 7, 11, this is what God says. Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant. He speaks in plural. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them into their own possession. Because of the sin of one man, this entire community is punished. And depending on where you come from, that seems utterly unfair and unjust or very much familiar. In the Western society, this is completely alien because individualism is our anthropology. Individualism is how we look at human beings, how we look at ourselves. Maybe in the Eastern and African context, it's different. I think all of this sounds a bit familiar because there is a stronger sense of communal solidarity. I saw this uh, difference played out uh, very clearly in what is now called Virginia Tech Massacre. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, five years ago, in, on April 16th, 2007, Song Hee Cho shot 32 people, uh, killed 32 people, and wounded 17 others in a college named Virginia Tech. This was national news. But I thought what was so fascinating was actually the response of the Korean community in the U.S. The Korean communities all around U.S. issued apologies on behalf of all Koreans. They were saying sorry to, uh, to the families uh, of the victims. Um, they were asking themselves, where did we go wrong? I was actually asking that question to myself. I felt responsible somehow. It wasn't actually just the Korean communities in the U.S. Actually, uh, as a response, the president of Korea at the time, Noh Myun, issued an apology saying, saying how sorry he was for the families. Cho was one of us. He was Korean, and all Koreans felt somewhat responsible for that. And of course, the American society didn't understand why this was going on. It was, um, Cho was really more American than anything else. He immigrated to uh, to U.S. when when he was eight. And for most of the Americans, uh, this was an act of one man, one person. A psychologically disturbed person, a deranged person, a sad person, but an act of one person. But you see the difference there. Most of the world, for the most of human history, has felt this shared responsibility. 
over sins uh, of the whole world. I mean, uh, their communities. This is that that shared sense of solidarity. It, it, it was the norm for the most of history, for the most of the world. And even in the Western society, I think there are uh, bits and pieces of this sentiment felt. For example, if one of your kid came and punched me on the face, the parents would come up and apologize on their behalf, right? And I would accept their apology because it's the parents apologizing for the child. Or perhaps the closest thing uh, we have in the modern day is the solidarity that we feel with our sports teams. You know, somehow, because I was wearing my Jeremy Lin jersey that day, that game, and if Knicks win, I, felt, I feel somewhat like I was part of that victory. <laughs> and if they lose, somehow we feel responsible for their loss as well. Anyway, the point is that in some ways, we know about this sort of corporate solidarity when it comes to sin how one person sins and other people are held responsible for it. And here, Abraham is exploring the opposite of that possibility. If one person's sin affects others, how about one person's righteousness? Can that affect other people as well? Will God forgive the sinful because of the righteous? Because God is so pleased with one person's righteousness. And Abraham must have been astonished to hear the answer. God says he will forgive the entire city for the sake of the 50 righteous. Then he asks about 45. Is that enough? Can that cover the, right, the, the, sinful, uh, the, the sin of that city? How about 40, 30, uh, 20, even 10? And God again and again says, uh, yes, he will. And, and, and God answered in verse 32, for the sake of 10, even 10 people, I will not destroy um, the city. What Abraham has discovered is the principle that there is a corporate solidarity, just as there is corporate solidarity when it comes to sin. There's corporate solidarity with righteousness. As well, and this is how Gerhard von Rad, uh, the Old Testament commentator, puts it. Uh, I think uh, I'll, this is fairly long, but I think it's a it's a, a, a such a great summary that I'll read it to you. Could not God so honor the righteousness that a very small minority of righteous could cause the reprieve for the whole city? Abraham is in great anguish in mind, knowing as the modern people do not, as dust and ashes, we have no right to ask this question. But what is amazing is how Yahweh's gracious righteousness dawns on Abraham and increases his courage as the dialogue goes on until he arrives at the astonishing fact that even a very small number of righteous people could so please a righteous God that it would stem the judgment, so predominant his will to save over his will to punish. So predominant is his will to save over his will to punish God would look over the sins of others for the righteousness of a few. But the question that Abraham does not ask, you know, and you know how it is, when you talk to an important person or a person that you think is very, very, very important, you feel like you only have a few questions to ask, right? You can't go over more than that. And that's exactly how Abraham feels. 
But the question that Abram does not ask is, how about one person? Is one person enough? Will you save the entire city for the sake of one person? Will you forgive the sins of the whole community if there is one righteous person that represents that community? And, of course, Abraham wasn't asking about Lot and his family because we find out soon enough that Lot and everybody in that family is all sinful. Lot's wife becomes a pillar of salt. A few chapters later, Lot gets drunk and there's incestuous relationship in that family. In fact, it wasn't about, God, it wasn't about Lot. It's not about, this question isn't about any of us. Because we know that there is no one righteous, not even one. Except, of course, there is one. There is one who is so righteous, so pleases God, and for whose sake God will change the way that he relates to the whole humanity. Remember what God says about his son when his son's baptized. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am so pleased. Jesus, throughout his life, obeys his father's commandments. Throughout his life, so pleases God with his righteousness. Jesus' righteousness covers over our sin. God is so pleased with his son that he's willing to adopt all of us as his own. There are many, many ways of looking at salvation, and this is just a one facet, uh, one way of looking at salvation. Christ's righteousness covers over our sins. But the question remains. The question that um, Abraham had in his his mind, I think, remains on on our minds as well. What about justice? What about justice? Remember Abraham's original protest in verse 25. He said, Far be it from you to do such a thing. Will not the judge of, uh, judge of all the earth carry out justice? Carry out justice. If God's punishment of a city when there are righteous people there is unjust, what about forgiveness? What about the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah? What about the sins of that city? That outcry um, in verse 20, the word outcry, a Jewish commentator says, is often associated with prophets and psalms with the shrieks of of the tormented and the oppressed. What about the cries of the oppressed in the city? What about their sins? What about justice? Shouldn't there be punishment Shouldn't the likes of Joseph Kony that we've seen in the viral video, Kim Jong-un, or, I mean, I just think about all the North Korean dictators, and they're just so terrible. And of all, the, of, all of us, all those who exploit the weak and the poor, shouldn't they be punished? If we want justice, if that is what we want, there must be punishment. How can God just forgive? Put it in this light, we can see the dialogue between Abraham and God as a conversation about which part of God's two competing natures is going to get the upper hand. Is it going to be justice or is it going to be mercy? Will God forgive or will God punish? 
Either way, one of them is not going to be fully satisfied. And once again, that is so until the cross. Could you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3? Romans chapter 3, verses 25 to 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 to 26, which is found on page 797 of the church Bibles. This is what Paul writes in Romans 3, 25, 26. God presented him, God pre- presented Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he left the sins uh, committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so, that, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in, in Jesus. Jesus dies to demonstrate his justice. To punish all the wrongdoings that had gone beforehand and that will go on in the future. And at that moment of Christ's death, God poured out his wrath upon him, upon the Son with whom he was so pleased. He's punished. His justice is satisfied. And as we know at the same time, this is the highest expression of God's love and mercy towards us as well. For that cross was substitutionary. Jesus took the place on that cross that we should have been. Mercy and justice are both satisfied on the cross. And all of this is revealed to you. Revealed to you as friends of Christ. He told us that not only did he come to reveal um, himself to the world, his plan for the world, he told us that he will come again as the judge. Abraham said, how could it be right that you treat the wicked and the righteous alike? Well, Jesus says, I mean, the Bible says, at the end time, God will not treat the wicked and the righteous alike. He will judge. He will come as the judge. But, you see, the delay for that judgment, the delay of his second coming, the reason for that delay is also his mercy. Second Peter 3, 9 and 10. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some, some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. God has delayed his coming. Because he is a merciful God. He desires all people of all nations to be blessed through Christ. So he hasn't returned yet. God will separate when he comes the righteous and the wicked. Those who wear the righteousness of Christ or those who still wear the filth of their own sin. And there will be punishment and there will be reward. And as friends of Jesus as people who are entrusted with this knowledge and this plan, will you plead with God? Will you pray on behalf of your friends, behalf of your family, behalf of the world? Will you participate 
in that plan of salvation, of bringing this good news of Jesus Christ to every corner of the earth before Jesus comes back like a thief in the night. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who is just, but also a God who loves to forgive. And we pray now on behalf of our family, behalf of our friends, behalf of our company, behalf of all the relationships that we belong to, all the communities that we belong to, Lord, have mercy upon each one of them. And we pray that as we bring uh, their, their names before you, these organizations before you, our communities before you, we pray that you will shower down your mercy. We pray that you will shower down your Holy Spirit and open the eyes of the blind, that they may be spared, that they may wear the righteousness of Christ, that we may share in all the blessings that you have in store for all of us. And we pray that you will make us your, your friends um, who are also your mouthpiece, that you'll make us your, uh, your priests who, who, who intercede on behalf of the world. And as we do that, Lord, may we see you transform um, Hong Kong, all the communities that we belong to, and may your justice and mercy reign. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.